maybe we'll get started. I'd like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional lands of the Kaurna people, whose power respects Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Rosina Pottingham, who is going to talk to us about her current exhibition on a Praxis art space, The Patch, and a lot of other things besides. We've had a bit of a preliminary conversation, but I'm very excited to get into this chat today. So without further ado, can you please welcome Rosina? Can I call you Poss? Yeah. Poss, <laughs> the show at um, Praxis is really fascinating. The first encounter with it, it feels like an engagement with a, a quite an a antiquated photographic process with the cyanotype. But the closer that I look at that work, the more I was confused by it. There was that sense that we weren't seeing uh, the silhouette of the botanical form, which is kind of what we're familiar with with a cyanotype, but the sense that light was traveling through these things. Can you tell me what you were trying to, what, what, what the thinking was behind that show and how you achieved that effect? Um, I guess I was trying to completely reverse how we usually see the cyanotype process and it came from me going on really good YouTube Google sessions and looking at alternative photography processes and for me I'd been using cyanotype and it's actually, let's just be honest, one of the most simple ways of getting kind of imagery across when you're looking at alternative printmaking. Um, and it still uses the photographic process. And, and for people that don't know, it's a solar exposure process. Yep. So you, you mix part A and part B, a photosensitive chemical, and you apply that in the dark. And it doesn't have to be completely black, but I like to do completely black. So I'll do that in my bedroom with my phone up on the top ledge and splash blue everywhere. Um, <laughs> it's the only place with a dark room. <laughs> you know, you got I've got two studios and neither of them have a full dark space that you can do that in. Anyway, so I'll, I'll paint that kind of canvas surface completely. Usually when it's paper, I'll do two, two layers. But with the canvas, I did a test with that. And it was so hard to wash out. So I had to keep it to, to just one. So, yeah, that's a little bit about the cyanotype. You, you paint that in the dark. Then you wait till that completely dries. So, for the canvas, that's at least an 18-hour process in my bedroom. Because with the, the lights off. With the yeah. lights off and yeah. the door shut. And I don't know how I was trying to pick my clothing in between that. <laughs> I'm getting ready to go to work. But I had to wait till the canvas was dried. And then I would take that outside, apply a negative on top of it. So, the imagery that we've seen, but negative version. And then put that on top. And then I'll I sandwich that with a bit of glass. My glazier was very upset because I went twice in the same week to Frank's place and said I broke my piece of glass already, loading too many cactuses on it. <laughs> and, yeah, so you'd layer that on top of the canvas and then you would uh, yeah, weight that down, that negative, so that the negative has to be as close as possible to the paper or the canvas and then – the sun will do the exposure. So wherever the sun hits the chemical, it will darken to the blue. And wherever the negative was, it will be white and wash out and not not harden. And that's why we usually see cyanotype with a negative approach. You know, you place the leaf or the flower or the object on top of the paper. And that's how Anna Atkins was early, one of the first photographers mm. um, doing all of that 
series of these British algaes. Um, and what was so beautiful about those was all of the transparency kind of hidden within those. It wasn't just that her algae forms were block out white. They had all of that transparency in there. So I guess making these works, I was thinking about those intricacies of the transparency, but not wanting to create it from direct images. I wanted to to make my own photograph versions. Um, Yours feel a lot, lot less flat in that sense. I think I, wanted, I, I really wanted them to have depth and to have maybe a foreground and a background. So I, I, yeah, I would scan this plant in, in the studio lit up and I would take these cuttings from the patch or I would go to the patch with a torch and a huge big light and scan live on the site, just a, just a video file that ended up working the best for the 3D tech and then yeah so when you say scanning you're actually creating a 3d model of the, yep. the botanical specimen that you're looking at yep. yeah so in november apple finally released some new photogrammetry um a- api software which meant people can third party developers can finally create some apps on apple and unfortunately i'm all i'm all apple um and so PhotoCatch was developed and it's this really cool software where you can load in either images or a video. But for me, um, taking heaps of images of one item is just quite awkward and if you're a little bit further away, it, it won't work. Um, it's really hard to get the models to work, to output a clean, decent model. So, yes, yeah, I used a video f- file to create these, quite short snippet, exactly the, the area that I wanted of the plant, um, some really detailed, and then I would take that 3D model and put that in Blender and then fake light that scenario in Blender and that's how I'm finally getting that weird block out complete areas of darkness and I didn't quite realise at first that it was that fake lighting that was making it feel so eerie. That took me a little bit to realise because I was really not that good at Blender and anyway, I figured out how to 3D light these shapes then I would render those out and apply really grainy photography that I'd taken on site behind as a contrast between these crispy but awkward and weird confusing digital scans on top and then a layered backdrop of these fuzzy kind of the same photography. Like you can tell it's the same area often um, but, yeah, with actual photo. So I'd merge those two and then have to find a happy medium where when it was a negative, I, you, know, you could still see what's going on. Mm. So, yeah. So it, it feels like a, an ongoing thread through your practice. I know that you're interested in, in film photography. You, you were talking about your medium format, film, camera, the cyanotype process, but also listening to you talk about sort of waiting for the software to be released before you can actually make the work that you're visualizing and feeling that sort of lag of being an Apple person waiting six months before it's made native for your platform. But there is a real interest in your in your practice in looking at a whole range of photographic image-making processes and quite a lot of quite uh, sophisticated experimental new formats. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you engage with that new technology? I guess I see the new and the old as equally the same learning curve for myself. You know, say it's an old printmaking um, new skill, it's still a new skill, or say it's learning how to use the new tech. 
they're kind of equally as hard and I, I feel somewhat stuck in the middle of both, you know, not sure and don't have the old school tech of a dark room and don't have the facilities or the skill set or the knowledge of how, you know, gum bichromate prints are made but really want to but they're really bad or something for the universe and chemical-wise. And then equally I feel like the new tech is – sometimes really hard and and it's it's cool because you can see youtubes about it but then they're not always up to date they're not because it's so fast moving sometimes the information about the new tech isn't there or i'm trying to do it in a really weird wrong way it's often there for 3d modeling but i'm coming at this through being a photographer using photogrammetry photogrammetry being using many photos to build you know the 3d model and i naturally was I came to that through the Parklands project and trying to scan a bunch of trees before iPhones had that scanning feature so I had to borrow my friend's iPad and climb the trees and scan with the iPad sounds dangerous yeah (laughs) (laughs) for the iPad as well (laughs) but um I, I I stuck with Cyanotype for this um because it was the best image making, but I really wanted to explore these um, this other kind of UV pigment print process. And you can see there's a blue. The, the, the blue was the cyanotype. I've got the green and red works um, in the show, the patch, and they were a different new chemical version that Eckersley sell. And I just wanted to see what the image might be like with a different kind of color because we've got all of – well, I think that people have a preconceived idea of cyanotype artworks. And I thought, well, what if the whole show was, you know, you can tone them. What if it was sepia or brown or red? You know, how would people respond to it? Um, and I loved the idea of doing those. But here on the screen you can see a stark contrast between the the really obvious density that the cyanotype still has. And that's why it's been used for like two you know, 100, 200, it's a really old school, 100 years. Um, it's an old school process and it's still around because it's it's easy, it's simple and it really works, whereas these newer ways that people were trying to figure out solar fast pigment dyes, they're wet process, they ruined my negatives, and then they just didn't quite work as well. Mm. But I, I still gave them a go. Yeah. Mm. It's a really interesting observation, that sense that both the future and the past are sort of equally distant from us and grappling with those different technologies is really more or less the same. Coming through what you were just saying, um, your engagement with this new technology uh, feels very contingent on on the connections that you're able to make, the kind of uh, technical professionals that you can come in contact with either through mentorships, residencies, or just conversation. How do you approach that side of your practice and how do you connect with those people that have the knowledge and the skills and the technology that you want or need to access? Big question. question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where do I start? I guess there's, you know, always this new drive for something that you might really want to learn. And at every point I've found, you know, there's someone that's really good at doing that. What if I ask that person that's really good at doing that if they might be willing to share. And I guess the arts community has been so kind and supportive um, and and equally I, I try to reciprocate that to other people and, and openly share how I've – my process and, and my way of making. Um, so I, 
after I finished my master's, Mark Kimber came and saw my works in Liverpool Street Gallery and has been an ongoing mentor for me within the photographic medium. Many discussions about body body image, about those first works in photography and about you know, what they meant to me and how that was in image making and how I might hide the figure using using things like smoke and haze and I guess that was me learning how to layer but within a camera system. Um, but then going on to meeting Laura Wills at her studio at, at Central's and then kind of showing her my early zines and my masters and saying, I really love your map making and I've done these maps of my masters uh, you know, how might how might you be able to share some of your skill set and would you be keen on mentoring me and just asking those questions of people that I admired and looked up to and wanted to to be more like. I didn't I didn't ever want to copy them. I just wanted to learn their skills and because your masters and your your education didn't come through a strictly visual arts path. It was a, a very a, a more design focused course with elements of that in there. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of the from the conversation we were having earlier, the, the, a lot of the mentorship and these skills was about you developing a kind of a curriculum for yourself about the things you wanted to learn to build your own artistic practice. Yeah, and I feel like there was a bit of a crossover between art and design and photography. I mean, during my undergrad, which was visual communication, graphic design at UniSA, the whole first year we had to use a 50mm lens and a, and, a, and a camera and learn every type of photography. Um, but that was just through the design process and learning what, what panning or what every type of photography meant. But then in contrast to that, I was still doing all of my electives in photography the whole way through and then in my gap year, another photo blog and then my master's led me across to map making and looking at that briefing process between um, designer and participant and a set of co-creation tools in that way. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it answered my question really well. <laughs> but I also feel like um, I get a sense looking at your practice and your CV that there's been really pivotal moments when you've um, received funded mentorships or grants that have enabled particular projects. And I was just a little bit curious about your approach to some of the things you apply for and what your strategies are for that? I, I guess I try to only focus on one grant at a time and only if I'm really, really, really keen and I know that that project is so pivotal, fundamental, and, and I just you, you just come at it running. And I often have been so lucky to be able to have people around me and ask so many people for help, you know, even just for some of those early arts essay grants with, with Laura to have Belinda Powers and to be able to go for meetings and chat and say, well, how do you think I might get this funding? Well, if you're paying the artist this much, that's better, looking at rates, um, chasing down the specific projects that, yeah, that are only one at a time, so not trying to do three grants at once. I, I can't do that. I can only do the one project at a time in the arts spectrum because then I'm also on the other side split processing and trying to manage everyday life and doing design and photography on the side as well having said all that your output seems really spectacular like the number of shows that i see you doing the amount of work that i see you doing and 
a lot of my first encounters with your practice were with some of your collaborative work that you were making with Brianna Spate. The Zinc series that yes. I saw exhibited quite quite a bit, and then more recently in uh, another show at Praxis, the uh, not Praxis, sorry, Pop Gallery, the um, Adelaide X, where you uh, curated by Suzanne Close, where there was a whole body of work, the the ground ground, ground cover, uh, ground yep. cover work, yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of those, what collaboration means to you in your practice, what unlocks for you? Um, I think my first true encounter to creating a equal collaboration was with was with Brie at Salvia House. We, we made that residency knowing we wanted to work together but had never made work together and knew if we got a residency, we'd be stuck down there, we'd have to learn. And we built from a foundational ground level of nothing an entire practice together where we equally brought together our knowledge and would have conversations. And I guess what I learned is that it, it takes double as amount of time because you don't just have those conversations in your head. You have to have those ones out loud with the other person and that just takes time. So I mean, it's amazing when we get to shoot because then we've answered all those questions and we just get there and then it's in flow and it really works. But it's the amount of effort and energy and, and care and respect, respect for one another's practice that we can openly share our processes and our thoughts and our making. And it doesn't mean we always agree, but it means we get to have those chats and really nut it out. So we built Salvia, we built that zinc series via a big, broader site study of Port Nolunga and in and around Salvia House. At that time when the fires were on in KI and... I don't know, it just felt really weird and apocalyptic. And then we ended, our show opened as COVID came. <laughs> that was a time. But we were really proud of that work because we'd built it from nothing within the space of three months, a whole show, and it still feels really strong. Mm. Yeah. And what, what were the, the points of intersection in your two practices or two bodies of thinking that drew you to think that you might have something to say to each other or be able to work together? I think we first connected in that in a show that I had at Car Clue that Gabby Gabby Lane, Brianna, Brianna Spate and Jasmine Crisp all had that residency early on at Car Clue, two artists and the curator, and Gabby found my work in a zine and gave me the opportunity to have an early show of photographs. And I think it was there that I had a chat with Brie and I said, I love your work. I love that you're in a photographic medium. It's really playful. It's it's thoughtful. It's considerate. It's fun. And we're both like, yeah, photography, film, bodies, photo making, women. And we just, we just were like, oh, we better do that together. Yeah. What if we did that <laughs> together? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that then that project, the the ground cover project, grew into quite a large project and grew into a, a project that was. A lot of conversation, if not collaboration, with a lot of other people as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the how the ground cover project? Goes? Yeah, we. Um, I guess we thought zinc's done. We've done. We've done that. That was a site specific study to Salvia. So, oh shit, we better make a new body of work. Well, what better? Why don't we come up with a study? You know, <laughs> we had so many questions, and I remember driving in the car together and thinking about. Brie was talking about rights for rivers and I was just talking about how some politicians have to swear their right to care and to care for nature and have their hand on the Bible or, I don't know, things like they have to swear in or something. And mm. I was like, well, what if you, we swore to care for nature? And then we just kind of were looking at people that were doing really cool things based in 
in nature protection um, uh, really broadly and thought of people that we'd love to make portraits of mm. and had really you know, cool things that were happening. And we had so many on this hot list and it just seemed like a really fun thing that we could, we could create quite visually different artworks and were like specific to a thing so it wasn't like a broader, bigger it all sat within the broader, bigger body of work, but they were, you know, individual portraits. And, yeah, we got and very to... dense, very dense works. There was lots of information buried in each of those portraits. Well, and they were very um, very lateral ideas of what a portrait could be or how you might... Yeah, something. they were big, funky montages and we had the coolest time editing those together and getting to share the full editing process and then sharing all of the skills that we would edit in different ways and then swapping our files and going back. So we really did have a lot of fun with that. But, um, yeah, we went out and did those photo shoots and we came back with with so many images and that's why they're really dense because we just had so many images. We just we had to sometimes refine them back and not put them all in there. No. <laughs> you know, I, met, I listened to Worm Boy at the joinery and he said, oh, I just love making compost. I've made it for a year. And I went, oh, Ripper, let's yep. take a portrait of Worm Boy. <laughs> and he's like branded with Worm Boy and he's just been learning how to make really good compost. And he, I think him opting out to, uh, opting to do this talk at the joinery and him being so enthusiastic about sharing compost meant us as photographers were so excited to work with someone that loves what they do, even if it's not their full-time job. And I guess that made making work about someone feel just such a joyful and fun experience to be able to do. Well, I remember, painted in pink. Painted in pink. <laughs> I remember chatting to you before the opening of that show and the level of enthusiasm that the two of you had about that body of work was infectious. It was really exciting. And I felt like I could understand looking through your practice, there is this really deep engagement with ecology. And I felt like that was one of the things that was getting you so jazzed about that work. And I feel like that's coming through in the patch, the patchwork as well. What is it about the natural world that excites you or, or, or draws you back to, to make these works that? I think, you know, this long-term site study of the patch, you know, led through my involvement with the Parklands project where I, was first kind of scanning these trees and maybe a little bit about the Parklands project. Uh, three artists, we were commissioned and given us a, a site, a bush for life site. Um, the Parklands was developed by Jackie Hunter and Jill Woodlands and then delivered by Oscar, Open Space Contemporary Arts, um, into a one-day festival celebrating the Parklands and just how cool they are that we've got parklands around us. So, um, And the premise was that the artists would be given a particular site and would yep, create Yeah, and then work that... with a community group or school. So my patch that I was given was Park 6, Nantu Woma, the Bush for Life patch right in the middle of um, the North Adelaide parklands, in the middle of the Horsey parkland with the worst heat mapping in, ESA, in the parklands. I'd like to mention that there should be some more trees there um, <laughs> and yeah so I got given this patch and it was we think through looking with Matt Georgeson in the council um, looking at overhead images what are they called again aerial photography of the site taken back in time um, there's a, like a really big gap between the 70s and 
early 2000s, but we, we think it was planted in the 1980s because there's a bit of irrigation pipe. And all of these gum species are just all from around Australia, but so they're not Indigenous to site. Um, I've been learning which ones are and which ones aren't. But, yeah, I just mapped this patch of trees. And so that assortment of gum species is the patch. It's yeah. the patch that we're talking about. It's, got, the it's a bush for life site, so it's got, you know, a little bit of chocolate lily and one ruby red salt bush or a couple, and I've, I've scanned that. Um, but it's not an ultra-diverse site, but I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. It's got these cockatoos in it. One time it had a bat, then it had a, a koala up in a little dangly she-oak tree. It's just a weird, quirky site, and it feels good when you're in it. But people don't know that you can go in it because it's surrounded by a fence where the horses are, and you have to kind of walk through the horse yard, and um, it feels like you're not sure whether you should go there. Did you did you feel this affection for the patch when you first were given that that site, no. or is this something that's grown through engagement? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I kind of first went there and I was like oh man it's just heaps of gum trees and they're so tall and they're planted really close to each other and all of the fruits and buds are you know right at the top so you can't tell what a lot of the species are and they're just heaps of sugar gums and I just didn't know what to do I was like how am I going to make an artwork about this because it all just kind of looked like a bunch of gum trees (laughs) like not in those spectacular old lemon scented you know big red gums that we think of but these were kind of young heaps of skinny gum trees I was like oh man what am I going to do I make art so I I just went out there and started having site studies conversations and then I was like oh maybe some of these gum trees are a bit different and I had a Mark Scharnberg, he was on the city council team. He came out and helped me identify and we, we tapped in a few and wrote what they were and he brought out this fabulous Fruits and Buds of Gumtree book from the 1950s or something mm. and it had all these really cool plated drawings of gum fruits and I was like, oh, sick, this looks really cool. All right, this is a good historic document. It's a hundred of these printed. Um, anyway. Then we looked at kind of with wilderness mapping what each of those gum tree species were and turning that into a data map and, you know, working through a set of questions like what's the space between the next tree? Which percentage of tree is is branches? How tall is my gum tree? You know, all these really funny questions and the schoolgirls were answering those and screaming about being bitten by enchants and we had a really great time the art teachers were fabulous to work with and that did lead to a residency with them after um, so it, feel, yeah, it feels like a lot stemmed out of that original parklands project it's been an ongoing engagement with that site but it's also opened up connections for you is that moving beyond the patch exhibition at praxis will you still continue to engage with that site yes i don't know why i'm addic- i'm addicted to this site um yeah well I guess I started scanning the trees and made that an AR filter in Spark that connected to the painting for the for Parklands and then I thought oh what if I now scanned those trees and then I could hang my artwork in VR so then I thought perfect I'll apply for that residency assemblage center creative arts at Flinders but I hadn't even scanned the patch yet and I ended up, they really wanted to support the idea, but I just didn't have, 
my stuff together. So they've, they offered me a residency, a shorter one, this year, and I'm working there at the moment. And that's where I've had the opportunity to develop, to develop Herding Caterpillars, which um, was a play that already existed about the symbiotic relationship between the checkered copper butterfly, um, so the caterpillar, its host plant, native sorrel, um, Oxalis perinans, and ants, so the checkered copper caterpillar uh, butterfly only lays its eggs on the oxalis plant and only if the ants are there. It's really cool. <laughs> and this play was shown at the Parklands Project and um, I met with Jerry Butler who developed it uh, with Jackie Hunter and that that play we, we figured out that Park 6 had native oxalis on the site list and we thought, perfect, that can go into the bigger, broader VR world. Um, so that. So what what hurting caterpillars is for you is it is a restaging and reimagining of that play in virtual reality. Yeah, and with an AR output as well because um, I love VR, but I think that AR might be a, a equal way of getting people to come into it. But both in, are encompassed under the word XR, which is extended reality. So AR being augmented reality, you hold your phone up, there's your hand, and then there's things kind of growing on your hand. Uh, VR being your virtual reality, completely encompassed in a fake world. Yep. So hoping to have both of those as outputs for that project. For an ongoing project. So hurting yep. caterpillars is just another step for your engagement with the patch and what you were talking about, scanning the site, creating a virtual reality version of it that you can interact with. It's really exciting, and it's a lot of new and exciting technologies happening in there as well. Oh, thank you. That sounds incredible. <laughs> um, but alongside what seems like an incredibly diverse and full art practice, you support yourself through um, art-aligned professional services as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you manage to maintain a career in the arts through still engaging with the arts? I think that's a really... You're very prolific, and I see your work in the in the hub, the design for the Harbingers exhibition out at Murray Bridge Gallery and the Neoteric show just this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that side of your practice? Wow, yeah, I didn't think I was, but uh, I really love doing design and photography services, um, but more and more so for the arts. And I, or it took me years to realize that. Only in the last couple of years have I realized predominantly for the arts it's my favorite people to work with I think that's just my area that I love <laughs> um, you know community arts organization arts gallery facing arts art stuff <laughs> um, so yeah I get I do photography services which encompasses you know events uh, installational you know, install shots and artwork documentation I thrive and love having like getting the opportunity to make a really crispy shot of an artwork it's it's important to have really good documentation not that I always take my own well but um it's nice when you can get a really good crispy shot of your art you know you're like sick that's awesome that's really important yeah Yeah. and then you get to share that with other people um and then in in design I guess I it's such an ebb and flow with me whether it's more design services that I'm doing versus more photography and for certain years it's been like oh I did more design that year and more photo and then I thought one might pull away and then they always just go up and down um 
But yeah, lately I've been definitely doing a few more catalogs and I love getting the opportunity to kind of to brand or do publication design. Um, I really like working in teams and getting to have working sessions where I get to kind of create heaps of layouts and heaps of work for it and then come together to kind of work through the brief. Yeah. That's really exciting to see someone who's developed a, a huge suite of skills pursuing their artistic practice, able to turn those to uh, paying gigs on the side that can support the artistic practice and really create this kind of enmeshed career for yourself. And it's really nice to, to watch that develop. Oh, thank you. I feel, I feel like I did the design and the photos first and that the arts kind of came out after and I've just been avoiding that for the whole time and now that's coming in further and further. Mm. Wonderful. I think we've got time for a few questions. If anyone has something that they want to ask, pause. Yes. I might repeat that question for the for the recording. So it was really interesting the process by which you're making the aerial photographs, and I think there was quite an interesting. Uh, component to those aerial pro photographs in the ground cover show as well, wasn't there? So I'm just going to talk to the image. Um, on the right-hand side, uh, Bree and I met with Andrew McGrath, the head of Airborne Research Australia. Ooh, this is a bit of a brain rack. And we were like we – we met with Perry Coleman and his daughter uh, – her daughter, sorry, did – some of the early analysis of the imagery from Airborne Research Australia to do with the St Kilda mangroves and the damage. So hyperspectral photography is used to analyse the level of chlorophyll damage and this was specifically important because of some big companies dumping heaps of salt out on the mangroves and we were like, that's heaps poo. Why? And <laughs> we wanted to know more about it. So we met with absolute guru Perry Coleman and made an artwork responding to her glassware, which is the one before, and, and her beta carotene. Anyway, that's a whole other artwork. But this one specifically uh, was about hyperspectral photography, and we had no idea, but we figured out that they actually took it um, – it's like a scanner in the sky. So it's not one image. It's one pixel by 2,000 pixels and it goes like and as they fly and then as it comes out, it's like totally warped like this and they have to use hardcore programming mathematic big computers to warp it back to a normal image. We were gobsmacked and so excited. We're like, cool. So what if we took that off the plane and we photographed ourselves going through it and did handstands because we wanted to stand up for the samphire. And so, yeah, we did that. And is that those images yeah, there yeah, that yeah, look yeah. almost so like Bri a graph? So Brie and I pushing a, each yeah. other through um, a hyperspectral camera. That's what that is. And you're able to recolor them on in any spectrum that you want because it shoots every wave length of light. That's a whole other lecture on light understanding and that one blows my mind. We've emulated this process on the left-hand side via sick drone imagery and then coloured it to be stylized like a hyperspectral imagery in closer to infrared or, you know, hyperspectral Im imagery. And we've 
we laid it ourselves and did handstands and were pre- pretending to stand up with the samphire, and that's us in there being samphire. Um, does that answer the hyperspectral question? <laughs> <laughs> I, think the, I think the original question was, how do you take aerial photography? I guess the answer was, with a drone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, with the drone, um, but not in the city. You can't do that in the city. So I had to go out to St Kilda. Um, you who uh, find someone with a drone, you pay them in beer. That's how you do it. <laughs> it's the drone economy. It's the drone economy. Five Corona cartons. Are there any other questions for us? <laughs> it's a lot of information there. So if, if if no one else has any other questions, maybe we'll um, we'll leave it leave it there and thank Rosina for her time. Thank you very much. <laughs>